everybody, and welcome to Adjusted. I'm your host, Greg Hamlin, coming at you from beautiful Birmingham, Alabama, and Berkeley Industrial Comp. And with me is my co-host for today, Matt Yelling. Matt, if you could introduce yourself again for those who don't know you. Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Yaling, and I'm joining Greg and Dr. Hanscom from along the banks of the mighty Mississippi in St. Louis, Missouri. So, Always glad to have you, Matt. We have a special guest today that I met at a recent conference, or at least heard, and it's Dr. David Hanscom, an orthopedic spine surgeon and author of Back in Control, a Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. So, Dr. Hanscom, I wanted to let you introduce yourself a little bit before we get into some of the questions we have for you. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. And I've probably been as involved in workers' comp issue as any surgeon that I'm aware of. I spent 30 years trying to help workers' comp in the state of Washington. So I practiced orthopedic spine surgery for over 30 years in Seattle, Washington. Four of those years were in Sun Valley, Idaho, which is how this whole project emerged that I'm going through. And so I'm a complex spine surgeon. I'm a deformity surgeon. I trained at Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is one of the top spine fellowships in the world at the time. And my practice was complex spine. And unfortunately for the patients, most of my practice evolved into what's called failed back spine surgery syndrome. And you are all well familiar with that because it's particularly prevalent in the workers' comp situation. So I spent years working with people doing their five, fifths operation, 10th operation, the record was one workers' comp patient who had 29 surgeries in 20 years. And wow. um, I was the, you know, I was right there at the end of it trying to salvage his life. And when I did the salvage surgery, I had to correct structural problems, but I went salvage the patient. It was the rehab that actually made the difference. So it took me a long time to figure this out. So you asked me a question, how did I decide to be a spine surgeon? And I'll just say it was an accident. I was an internist to start out with for two years. Okay. And I just simply I simply interviewed for orthopedics in the state of Hawaii just to write off my trip. And two years later, I get a phone call saying, do you want to do orthopedic residency in Hawaii? And I go, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but in retrospect, to be honest with you, I probably wasn't the personality to be a spine surgeon I, or, or surgeon at all. I really liked internal medicine. And um, surgery is a tough field. And then spine surgery is probably the toughest of the tough because you expect perfection. You're doing heavy moves over a delicate structure. And I don't know why I happened to choose spine surgery, for goodness sakes. I could have been sports medicine, which would have been a lot less stressful world. But the thing is, you ask the question, what caused me to leave surgery to focus on controlling chronic pain is that in life I did that my personality probably wasn't that suited to be a spine surgeon. I developed chronic pain. And I developed severe chronic pain for 15 years. I developed 17 different physical and mental symptoms. I had no idea what happened to me. And it happened in 1990. I was driving across a bridge in Seattle called the 520 Bridge, and I had a panic attack. I'm going, what is going on? And I did not know what the word anxiety meant. I sort of became a major spine surgeon by suppressing anxiety. And when it exploded on the 520 Bridge, it, you know, my heart started to race. I felt faint. I, you know, sweaty. I felt I thought I was going to die or at least having a bad heart attack. So it turned out to be the descent into 13 solid years of just pure misery. And again, I had 17 different symptoms. And I came out of it pretty much by accident in 2003. And we can talk about that later. But it took me another six or seven years to figure out what had happened. 
And I would just say just the last three years to really understand the entire range of the physiology of pain. And so the book Back in Control was written in 2012 first. The second edition was published in 2016. And it reflects my my story, but also reflects my insights of going through the process myself, trying many things that did not work, trying them with my patients, things that did not work. But anytime something seemed to have some promise, I kept gravitating towards that direction. So to jump into the story, I developed a process called the DLC Journey. It stands for Direct Your Own Care Journey. And it's a sequence of learning and tools that allow people to solve their own chronic pain. And so you have to first understand the problem. And then the solution is a sequence. And that's what we'll talk about a little bit later here. But yeah, the reason why this process has been, I think, quite successful because I was so miserable for so long. How's that for a short answer to a short question? <laughs> no, that's that great. great. So you talked a little bit about leaving spine surgery because you know you you kind of went on this journey yourself. How do you differentiate between acute pain and chronic pain? Because this is something we hear about a lot in the workers' comp field with our injuries. You know, we see the more recent injuries that start out with acute pain and then sometimes it branches into chronic pain. And I'm just curious if you feel like there's different ways to treat those things or what's your thoughts about them? So first of all, acute pain is completely different than chronic pain. Okay. So let's talk about acute pain for a second. So there's a range of responses that the body has to stay alive and protect you. So remember, pain's a signal. That's it. It's a signal that allows you to protect a specific organ. So if something's too hot, you protect your skin by pulling away. If you stir a breath that's too light, you protect your eyes by, by moving away from the sun. You don't step out into a street. So if you walk in hot pavement, you put your shoes on or get off the pavement, et cetera. So pain protects us. It's a gift. It's called nociceptive pain. And then if the pain persists a little bit longer, why it's uncomfortable and it's pleasant, but you still find a way to escape the acute pain. Mm-hmm. So people that are born without a pain system, by the way, which does happen, they live about 10 or 15 years because they can't protect themselves. They break down their skin, they break bones, they get infections, they don't survive for very long. So pain is a gift. The problem is with chronic pain, it's like a car alarm that's gone off when there's no problems. So it's incredibly annoying to have an alarm go off in a car that doesn't stop. Well, acute pain is unpleasant. And when that acute pain turns into chronic pain, it becomes indescribably unpleasant. So it turns out that after about 6 to 12 weeks, these pain circuits, which keep firing at your brain, become memorized. Your brain starts a short circuit. It changes your body's chemistry. So it turns out that chronic pain, by now, defined out of Chicago in 2014, is an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life events, and you can't erase the memory. And you've all heard of phantom limb pain. Well, okay, I learned that in residency. Nobody really explained to me why it exists. And it's still not explained in medical school why phantom limb pain exists. But think about it. The leg is gone. The arm is gone. Why is there pain? Because your brain has short-circuited. It's, it, the alarm is on and you can't turn it off. So we'll go into the details about the physiology of chronic pain later. But just understand, chronic pain is completely different. And we've also found out that chronic pain is one of is a chronic disease state that is similar to other disease states. So it turns out that osteoporosis, cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, obesity, diabetes are all metabolic inflammatory disorders. 
It turns out that anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, and schizophrenia are all metabolic inflammatory disorders. So I only learned this in the last couple of years. We formed a national work group, actually international work group, that discusses the really deep basic science research. And the technology in the, in the immunology world, in, in electromicroscopy, and genetics, and the mitochondria, which are the small engines of the cell, the technology is incredible. What is revealed, there's a common link to every chronic disease, every one of them, mental and physical. And as one of my friends says, who I think is a genius, simply says, it's all the same suit. So what happens, you now have a body that's under, we call it threat physiology. So it's sustained fight or flight. And when your body's under sustained threat physiology, it's like, it's like driving your car down the freeway in second gear. It's going to break down. So the essence of all chronic disease is sustained stress. It's been documented for decades, way before we had the technology to prove it, that stress kills, causes major diseases. Why? Why does that happen? That's, that's, I mean, if you want to call it death psychological, so be it, but it's not. And the other thing that medicine has done, we've gone down this rabbit hole of thinking there has to be something wrong, something wrong, something wrong for there to be symptoms. It's the opposite. So they say, well, I can't find anything wrong. That's not true. Your entire body chemistry is off. You're in full of inflammation. Your metabolism's up. Your brain is sensitized. Your nerve connection increases. The blood, blood supply shifts away from your gut and your bladder. So again, that's why so many physical and mental symptoms and diseases caused by sustained what we call threat physiology. The real problem here is that we say, well, this is psychological wrong. So again, everything's wrong. When your body's physiology is off, it's powerful. It bathes every cell in your body, and every organ is going to respond in its own different way. That's why there's so many symptoms and diseases brought on by sustained what we call threat physiology. So the essence of chronic disease, including chronic pain, is sustained exposure to what we call fight or flight or threat physiology. Again, for the audience, physiology is how the body functions. And this, the essence of the solution is promoting what we call cues of safety. So stress, people keep, is it a first statement to say that stress is, quote, psychological? Hmm. People think that, right? No, no, not at all. But a lot of people do. They think, well, I'm stressed out. It's just a psychological issue. You have, your stresses are just life. You have things coming at you that threaten your livelihood, either financially or physically or whatever, relationships. So stress, circumstances, is just life. And then it's your body's response to that stress. That's where the trouble comes in. So stress psychology is part of the response. We'll talk about that in a second also. But it's your body's total response. I'm sorry, it's your total body response to a threat or stress is the problem. So the term psychology is a funny term because we do have mental input that creates this physiological response. But stress in itself is your body's physiology on fire. I, I think that's fascinating. And one of the things I've, you know, and I think Matt and I have talked about this before, one of the big issues with workers' comp is we only focus on what's wrong physically. And a lot of times it's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, any of us who've been doing this for a long time have seen these injured workers who have a lot going on. And the only thing that's focused on you know, is there a rotator cuff tear or what is wrong with the spine that could be causing it? And it's often treated like our bodies are like a vehicle that could have a part replaced and a different part put in. 
and that if it's not working, then it must be that it needs to have something put in. And then when it doesn't work, you know, everyone's upset that the surgery failed. So talk, talk to us about, I mean, you've done a lot of spine surgeries. How did you reach the position you're in now where you wouldn't recommend surgery? Well, let me just back up for a second on the car analogy, because it's interesting Yeah, you use that. So 90% of symptoms in the body, 90% at least, maybe more, are caused by the body's physiology. Less than 10% are caused by structural problems. So think about a car parked in the street. How many symptoms does a parked car have? None. None. Yeah. You have to turn the car on. Right, right. Right? Okay, that's the physiology of the car is turning the car on. So if it's out of gas, which again, humans get exhausted, so it's not going to work. Now, if there's a structural issue, like you know the timing chain is off or there's missing a spark plug or two, then yeah, you replace a structural problem, then you have to tune up, tune up the car. So it's still how the car runs is the physiology that creates the symptoms. So the structural part is the smallest part of this whole deal, and we have it so backwards. It's unbelievable. So that's my mission right now. I love that. I want to jump to this one point about anxiety okay, and anger. So it is the pain. Okay, how do you feel if a dog jumps out at you and threatens to bite you? How do you feel? Threatened. So, yeah, I mean, Ang- I, you, feel, uh, you feel anxious. You do, yeah. I okay, remember when so, I was on the reservation, I'd always have to, when there were dogs that would hide underneath the trailers. You climb, you go up on those steps, and if, they, if those healers came out from underneath, you, uh, you definitely kept their, them in front of you, never turned around on them. Right. So, what were you feeling? I mean, you're feeling, you're feeling anxious. The- yeah. You're feeling the body's chemistry. So anxiety is just a chemical state. It's a neurochemical physiological state. It is not psychological. So remember, it's the result of stress. It's not the cause. So my cat has the same response. And so humans have a word that we call anxiety. So anxiety is not a psychological diagnosis. It's the driving force behind almost all dysfunctional human behavior. We'll do anything to avoid that sensation. Because it's a survival reaction, the species of creatures who do not pay attention to the sensation simply didn't survive. Now, so critical about that is that the survival response, anxiety slash anger, is a survival reaction. It's a gift. It's always going to be unpleasant because if it wasn't unpleasant, we wouldn't pay attention to it. But the problem is it is a one million times stronger than your conscious brain. Your unconscious brain is processing about 20 to 40 million bits of information per second. Your conscious brain processes 40. It's a million to one ratio. You can't solve anxiety with mind over matter. And the problem is we have all these things like addictions. We have all sorts of disability. And people have crippling anxiety disorders. Well, it's not anxiety is not a disorder. It's a gift of life. It keeps us alive, but it's going to be incredibly unpleasant. So it's a driving force. It's, a, it's just a word we use to describe activated threat physiology. So in our world, we're trying to get rid of the word anxiety and simply put in activated threat response or activated threat physiology. So again, if I had one message to give to the world right now is that I did not know this. I went through my own chronic pain issues. And you ask, well, how can I have 17 different symptoms based on, quote, chronic stress? Well, remember, every organ has its own set of cells, its own response to chemistry. So the kidneys are different than the stomach, they're different than the bladder. So, and I had extreme anxiety. Well, let me just talk about this for a second. So let's talk about the mental part of it. When you're under constant threat, half your brain is inflammatory cells. Your brain is actually part of the immune system. 
So your brain itself becomes inflammatory, sensitized by, the, by these little molecules called cytokines that fire up an inflammatory response. Then the speed of nerve conduction doubles from the inflammation. So now you actually physically feel more pain because the nerve conduction has increased and your brain is now sensitized. So of course you're going to feel the pain more acutely. So the problem is that I'll just tell you some of my symptoms, which your, your clients, trust me, Everybody that's in chronic pain has at least five symptoms. So I had migraine headaches, rain in my ears, I had stomach issues, I had neck pain, back pain, I had skin rashes come and go over my entire body, I had allergies, my feet were burning like crazy, I had extreme anxiety, depression, maybe, maybe, but I also developed a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder, which is one of the ultimate anxiety disorders. But again, it's just the sensation generated by my stress chemistry. I went to psychotherapy for 13 solid years. That's a lot of psychotherapy. Wow. wow. And things got way worse. Because again, this mismatch of this unconscious survival reaction compared to the conscious brain, talk therapy is remarkably ineffective. And we'll talk about maybe the therapies that are effective because there are therapies that are actually necessary to actually solve the problem. But talk therapy is not one of them because it's that million to one mismatch. So going to one of the core points we're making is that anxiety actually is the pain. That's what it is. And so what happens is that your physiology translates in physical symptoms all over your body. And then what humans have a major problem is that we know that mental pain is processed. It shares the same circuits as a physical threat, but humans cannot escape their thoughts, right? So if you have this, this, the research term is URTs, unpleasant, repetitive thoughts. So what happens, you can't escape your thoughts, which fires up the physiology. Then what's even worse is that repressed negative thoughts are worse because they not only fire up the physiology more, they actually shrink the hippocampus of your brain, which is the memory center. So hence brain fog, which I also had that too for a while. So, you know, long covid that's a, another threat physiology state. So again, threat physiology just creates havoc on your body, creates havoc on your life. And so what's the answer? There are ways of simply lowering the threat physiology. We call it dynamic healing. And I still, I know I segue just slightly off your question, why do I no longer recommend spine surgery? So let me just stop for a second. This is regroup. <laughs> Sorry, I keep taking you off on these pretty, pretty major tangents, but I, I just I'm keep, fascinated. It, it's just so, what's, what's going to be really frustrating to you is that I think you have my resources together. I'll send you a set of my resources, but you're going to find out that the solution is very self directed. In fact, by definition, the person himself has to direct the process. This is not psychological. And again, we'll talk about the solution in a second. But the reason why I don't recommend spine surgery anymore is because it's not. It has nothing to do with the anatomy. So this is the most perverse illustration of what I'm talking about. So you mentioned before that, okay, we have something that's to be, quote, structurally wrong. Otherwise, doctors ignore it. Okay, so let me ask both of you two a question here. Did we learn in high school about fight or flight? No? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I remember it, yeah. So why don't we understand that after medical school? Why do we completely ignore the factor that if you feel threatened, your whole, your whole body reacts? This is high school physiology, high school science class. We learned about this. And somehow medicine just turned a blind eye to the fact that most symptoms in the body, essentially all symptoms in the body, are created by your body's malfunction because of the, the physiology. 
So let me. This is the classic illustration about why I quit spine surgery. <clears throat> okay. So you know the data that says this, that disc degeneration, bone spurs, arthritis, bulging disc, herniated disc are not a source of pain. Have you seen Have you seen that data? No. Well, I mean, I I know that we see MRIs all the time that have bulging discs that our injured workers get really upset about. Right. And I think Matt and I would say anybody who's my age, 40s up, is probably going to have something show up in that MRI, but that may not be associated with any of the reasons you're having problems. It's not, it's not, may not, it is not. The data shows really clearly that those bone spurs, everything you just talked about, are simply not a source of pain. They are not. And we now know that chronic pain is a neurological disorder. And wherever the back pain starts is somewhere in the tissues, the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments. And for instance, we know that sleep, lack of sleep has been shown in a major study out of Israel in 2014, that lack of sleep actually causes chronic low back pain. It causes it. It causes it. How many surgeons do you think are asking the patients about sleep before they do major surgery? Okay, so here's the perverseness of it. And I, it just... <laughs> so why I quit? Because it turns out we're actually operating on anxiety. And the success rate, so then you have a disc that's been documented, deeply documented to not be a source of pain. Yet one of the most common operations we do in the United States is a fusion for back pain. So I can speak with some authority because I actually was one of those surgeons for my first eight years in practice was aggressive doing surgeries for back pain. I thought it was the right thing to do. Seattle had nine times the rate of spine fusions compared to the rest of the country per capita. I was part of that juggernaut. We had some new instrumentation back then called Steffi Plates, which you may or may not remember that name. And we were, we were some of the original quote researchers. So I asked one of my senior partners one day, go, what's the data on this? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So a spine fusion is a big operation. So I'm doing these big operations. And then I found out from a friend of mine, Dr. Gary Franklin, who's the medical director of Workers' Compensation of Washington, they published a paper in 1994 that showed that the, that the success rate from a spine fusion for back pain in the workers' comp population was 22% at two years, 22%. Wow. Then there's data out there, which I was not aware of until recently, that shows if you operate in any part of the body for any pain that's chronic more than six to 12 months, that you can induce chronic pain at the new surgical site or make it worse 40 to 60% of the time. So you have a fired up nervous system. The pain, there's always so many pain circuits in the brain, but you have these pain circuits fired up and you start plugging in body parts. So the chances of making you worse with surgery are double of the success rate. So we're operating on normally aging spines that have been documented not to be a source of the pain. We're doing a major intervention that has a 20% success rate and it continues to be one of the most aggressively done operations in the country. Go figure. It's why I quit. So with all that data, with that information, with what you just shared, how do you talk to an injured employee and successfully convince them that the doctor that's told them that they need this surgery and this procedure, that that doesn't need to happen and what they need to do is go download your app and... Yeah, avoid surgery at all costs. You know, I, I guess that's the that's probably our biggest. You know, if Greg and I agree, like, you know, surgery, you're going to have the same result in two years whether you have the surgery or not. You know, how do you convince somebody that's been told by a guy with these initials behind his name and done 
this procedure a hundred times or a thousand times, you don't really need that surgery. I mean, so you're not going to like my, cool. you are not going to like my answer. I, I know. <laughs> let's go right. Let's, let's go right. Okay. So but first of all, ask the question. That's it. That's what we're saying, here. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm really upset at my profession. I mean, we're predatory. So instead of doing one and two level fusions that don't work, we're now doing eight, 10, 12, 14 level fusions that don't work. And I actually was the chairman of the non-operative care committee for the Scoliosis Racial Society that I organized 50 people into eight work groups. We, we came up with a hundred page document, which I'm happy to send you showing that there's no data that says scoliosis is a cause of pain. So instead of doing a one and two level fusions that don't work, we're now doing eight, 10, and 12, and 14 level fusions that don't work with a very high complication rate, devastating results, and we're still doing them more and more and more. So the answer to your question going backwards is that it's frustrating as can be that my profession is even offering an operation to patients that has no data. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's not really the patient's responsibility to figure this out. I mean, you trust your doctors. And I see, and and I'll just tell you right now that a certain percent of doctors right now, the last five years, maybe the last 10 years, are simply lying to their patients. So I don't know. I mean, there's lots of good surgeons. I don't want to throw my colleagues under the bus because I was one of those surgeons. If I had not gone through my own chronic pain process, I I did the same thing. I would still be doing the same thing. I just had no insights into it. Because you're so trained of structure, 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 and surgeons were trained that we don't really have the responsibility to treat the whole person. We just have to do our job well. And the problem is with specialization, we do an operation, it doesn't work. Well, we did our job, it didn't work. Well, have a good life. Okay, so going back to your question is that patients and workers' comp are trapped. So what happens when you're trapped by anything? Remember, we said anxiety is a physiological state, so you feel a threat. You take action to solve the threat, and you move on. But what happens if you can't solve the threat, and you're trapped? Your body kicks in more of a stress response, and you become angry, and your workers' comp, you truly are trapped by everything, the pain, the circumstances, doctors. I mean, nobody's telling you how to get out of this hole. So you're trapped, and what happens, your body really fires up, and your thinking brain simply goes offline. So the metabolic activity in the blood supply shifts from the neocortex, your thinking center of your brain, down to the midbrain or survival center, and you also have a brain fog. And when you're angry and frustrated, all you want to know, you just want to be fixed. You don't want to deal with the issues. You don't want to deal with abstract thinking. And I will send you a paper I'm writing right now that when you are angry, is an absolute block to getting better. So I no longer engage in the conversation about trying to convince them that this is the way to go, this is the way to go. So I say, look, here's my book, here's my website, I'll see you back in two weeks. So if they're curious enough to start looking at it, it's game on. Because it's not that hard to understand. I think we had a pretty good conversation, hopefully explained it pretty well today. So everybody is so programmed, society, the patient, workers' comp, that if there's not a structural problem, you have to live with it. So I'm here to tell you the reason why I quit my practice, I was seeing hundreds and hundreds of patients go completely pain-free, including myself. No risk, minimal resources, it's self-directed. And not only do people go pain-free, they just thrive at a level they just never knew was possible. It's unbelievable. So conversely, I'm watching patients, three to five patients every week come to me with multiple surgeries being done, with their life way worse. The most common statement I heard was, if I just knew who bad, how bad it could be, I never would have done the surgery. Then I have another issue with the patients being so angry at their surgery, surgeons that fail, because the surgeons are very optimistic, you know, let's give it a shot, it's a big intervention. And so they get really optimistic about it and do the operation. 
So their, their, their promise of solution, it sounds great. And then I'm telling them that it's not going to work, number one. So they want to shoot me, to be honest with you. Second of all, they go, what are you talking about? So all I can tell you is that I, I, and if you look at this process called the DOC journey, the doc journey, it starts with your skepticism. Why wouldn't it? So remember, the essence of the solution is lowering threat physiology and increasing safety. But you also have what you're actually doing is connecting to your own body's capacity to heal. Whereas you just connect with what is, and um, you just connect with what is, and what is is pure disbelief. You're angry, you're frustrated, and lashing out. Why wouldn't you? So the process actually starts connecting with your disbelief. It's not about believing David Hanscom. It's not believing about anything about anything. It's just simply starting the process and allowing your brain to change. So I have not, that's where, when I deal with workers' comp situation, actually I figured this out about five years into practice because doctors, as you know, label their patients, especially workers' comp. They're lazy, they're malingerers, they're drug seekers, whatever it is. But what physicians don't know, and I learned this a few years ago also, that the mental health effects of being off work are devastating. Hmm. I mean, that's a great point. Yeah, none of us likes, I mean, there's a huge paper part of Australia showing that the mental health effects of sitting around the house are, are bad. Right. And humans don't like sitting around doing nothing. I don't care who you are. And I would say maybe 5%, 5% of patients, maybe 10% of the very most are malingerers, but in a way they don't have a choice because they're not given any alternatives to heal. So the answer to your question is, I say, look, here's the book, here's the website. Use my resources, use somebody else's resources. But it's not about generating belief in David Hanscom or in the Doc Journey or some other person's book. It's about actually connecting with who you are in your healing capacity. So once you can allow yourself to feel the rage and frustration, which is there, and start doing techniques to start calming things down, your brain starts going back online. You start going from the midbrain or survival centers back into the thinking centers, and things start to change. So I was... You mentioned the question, what does expressive writing have to do with chronic pain? And the doctrine starts with some basic tools that start the process. First of all, just understanding there is a different way of looking at pain. You don't, you don't have to understand it from the beginning. But you just have to understand the concept that chronic pain is different. It's totally different than acute pain. So there's a, sort of an ongoing education process that starts. The second thing is the expressive writing. So what happens is called um, expressive writing. You simply write down your thoughts, positive or negative, on a piece of paper, and you tear them up. You go, well, that's ridiculous. Well, there's a book right here in my hands written by Dr. Uh-huh. James Pennybaker, who's going to be in my podcast next week. Okay. And he started the original research in the 1980s on expressive writing. There's over 2,200 papers that document that it works. So it lowers viral load. It improves wound healing. It lowers anxiety and depression. It act, it's unbelievable what this thing does. So in my 15-year journey in chronic pain, the first thing that broke up my pain patterns was expressive writing. Now, I didn't know it, know it at the time. It started by accident. I read a book that says, start this writing exercise. So I started it. Within two weeks, I felt a shift. And by six, the, six weeks, I'm going, wow. So it was the first shift I felt in my pain for 15 solid years. Now, it's not the solution. And to be really clear, it's not the final solution, but it's the necessary starting point. It is the only one mandatory aspect of the entire healing journey. It's simply start the writing. And so when you say when you say expressive writing, so like if I was doing that, I would sit down and write the thoughts that are, you know, whatever I'm thinking as far as pain goes, what's on my mind, 
right. all that, get it out on paper and then throw it away or rip it up at that point. Well, and it's not, you're not trying to get rid of these things. Remember, there's are, okay. there are trillions of thoughts. You cannot yep. control your thoughts. What you're doing is simply a separation exercise. So okay. the thoughts are on the table, you're here and you tear them up for two reasons. The first one is right with absolute freedom. Because there's a lot of crazy, despicable, bizarre thoughts in our brains, everybody's brain. Every human being sure. has this problem. So even without being in chronic pain or trapped in disability, this is my biggest goal the next year is looking at these obsessive thought patterns is that they are brutal. You can't get rid of them. They torture people and they're rampant, especially in this younger generation. Yeah. So these thoughts create the physiological response. This generation right now is tortured with anxiety. My generation had its share too. But right now, this anxiety thing is brutal, but it's these That's obsessive a- thought pattern. Okay. So what you do... You, you tear them up for one reason, that's to write with absolute freedom. The more unpleasant the thoughts, the better. But you have to, have to be careful because you start actually writing these thoughts out, your body can react pretty quickly to that. Mm-hmm. So the second thing is the reason you tear them up is that when you write, all these issues come up. They're not issues. They're just thoughts. So if you keep them and analyze them and try to rehash them and write them down again mm. and again and again, you've actually reinforced the problem. You're empowering, you're empowering the ideas instead of just letting it go. Right. Well, yeah, you're just, it's just letting go, separate. It's just an exercise. That's it. It's just simply a separation exercise. So the first part of the doctrine is embracing your disbelief. Second of all, just start the writing. You don't have to believe in it. Just do it. The third thing is called my, I call it active meditation, is that your, your brain's erasing thoughts. So simply switch sensations. So both of you just sit back in your chair for a second. I'll do it myself. All right. Drop your shoulders. Take a deep breath. That's it. We used to do it in surgery all day long. We did mindfulness-based surgery. So we start getting raising thought patterns, getting frustrated. I mean, spine surgery is a little stressful. So if you find yourself getting ramped up, just sort of take a step back, take a deep breath, let it go, then re-engage with your move. I don't know. Interesting. How did, how, how did, uh, so Matthew, how did that feel? So relaxing. And I, I did download your app, the DOT Journey, and I thought it was clever. You know, yeah. It talks about the the people and their thoughts are racing and that cute little example of all, all the guys thinking about is yogurt or whatever at the mm-hmm. beginning. And, right. But I mean, I can <laughs> I can relate <laughs> to that because uh, I'm trying to do a, a daily 10 minute meditation thing and your mind starts to go like to the opposite thing where you're trying to think about, right? You're like trying to be silent and reflective and think about your day and what's happened and and all of a sudden, you're thinking about, yeah, yeah, I'm hungry. Uh, yeah, right. Whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, just to let the audience know, so there's two things that I have. Well, a bunch of things. But the, the main resources are, um, it's called the Doctrine Course. It's a computer-based course. With that, so the second thing is an app where it's based on our workshops that we've put together. It's called the DOC Journey app. And about a year into developing this app, my wife came over and looked at the app. And she goes, that's not an app. So my wife is a tap dancer, and we put these workshops together based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. Turns out that play is the opposite physiological state of pain, huh. right? Okay. So it's yep. not about distracting. It's not about playing to, to distract yourself from the pain. It's actually taking your body's physiology and really connecting with that energy. It changes your body's physiology. And in every one of our workshops that were three to five days long, about 80% of people went to pain-free within the week, every time. And I could not figure out what the heck was going on. So it's based on structure, shared experiences, some education. Then my wife's a tap dancer, so we did the cup song, juggling starves. 
So the app's full of those resources. And so the Doctrine app is a resource. The Doctrine course is a resource. And then we have, I do coaching twice a week for an hour, Tuesdays and Thursdays at noon. It's just a group session, very light. We cannot discuss your pain. And so those are resources that help things move along relatively quickly. So the Doc Journey app and course have evolved over 20 years of my own experience in watching 100 patients go to pain-free. And again, watching people, not only do people go pain-free, is that for all of us, when you quit fighting anxiety and anger, which are, again, gifts, they're supposed to be unpleasant. People thrive at a level they never never knew was possible. It's unbelievable, and it's consistent. So I just want to jump into some concepts here. Well, let's just finish the starting point of the doctrine. So we talked about embracing your pain. Second of all, the um, expressive writing. Third, we call it active meditation. And, you know, Matt, as you talked about, is that you're trying to meditate, which I think is fine. I think it's a great tool, but it's hard. It so is it, hard. It is, just drop your shoulders for a second. That's it. I mean, it doesn't take any time. It's preaching becomes sort of automatic that you find you find yourself getting a little bit tense. You just drop your shoulders, listen to a sound. Done. Three to five seconds. So the next thing is sleep. Huge. So chapter fourteen of my book is based on sleep. It's not the ultimate answer, but when I was in practice doing this on my own in Sun Valley, which is how I learned the process with my patients, everybody was able to sleep within six weeks, no matter what. Now a few people I had to send to the sleep centers to get that done, but nothing really happens without sleep. Remember, we talked about how earlier that lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. So again, you say, how can that be? Well, we do know that lack of sleep is actually inflammatory. Interesting. And so by getting sleep, you actually, and it, it, it's also at nighttime through a form of the lymphatic system called the glymphatic system that your body empties out the wastebasket. That's how you, that's how you clean out your brain is at night. And if you're not sleeping, it is devastating. So the final thing on this leg one of the doc journey is we call never discussing your pain. So I was one of those people that probably 60 to 70% of your waking hours are spent on the internet, discussing your medical care, complaining to your friends and family about your pain. But where's your attention? You're reinforcing the pain. And so people's eyes get consumed by their pain. And again, from a neuroplasticity standpoint, your attention's on the pain, on the problem, on trying to find a solution, on trying to fix the problem. So you're dramatically actually reinforcing these pain circuits. So I say, look, mental pain and physical pain are the same thing. So when you walk out of my, and I do do this on the first visit. So I always say, Greg, yep. when you walk out of the door of my office, you will never discuss your pain ever again. No exceptions with your, especially your family, with your family, friends, or colleagues. No discussing your medical care with family or friends. But also no complaining, no giving unasked for advice, no malicious gossiping, quit watching the news, because that's the input that fires up your system. Yeah, so no, people, you're right. People also look at I me, love it. don't bring your work home. Well, your you work- know, Do- Dr. Hanscom, you, you've hit on something like, you know, I don't talk about it a lot, but I've had, you know, dealt with anxiety on and off throughout my life. And one of the, some of the things that I just discovered on my own was one, stop watching the news, right. turn it off. And right start eliminating the triggers of the things in my life that I don't have control over. Right. And the other thing you said was sleep, you know, believe it or not, that's a huge one. I find I get sick more frequently when I don't get my rest. Right. And you know, my anxiety is worse. All those things are worse when I don't do those things. So, I mean, it's huge. 
Well, and again, the problem with workers' comp situation is that you really are trapped. And I, I sort of got segued as I've been doing all day today on my original answer, but I figured out 30 years ago that patients in workers' comp weren't malingering. They were legitimately trapped and they were angry. Yeah. Now, I didn't know about anger being a physiological state at the time, but I just knew that the labeling and everything they get, I mean, they're abused. Sure. Uh, they're well, abused they're by the system. So it's sure. legitimate anger. Yep. So, I mean, I'd love to have, do another podcast with you on the <laughs> anger. Around. There's a bunch of, fan, I mean, there's a whole, whole energy about these obsessive thought patterns, but also the effects that chronic pain has on the family is just brutal. Yeah. Brutal. And so it wipes out family. So your family, instead of being a source of peace and joy, you bring this energy into the home. And of course, the family's now stressed out, which stresses you out. So you get this massive cosmic ping pong game going. And so chronic pain just devastates households. And so that's a whole different topic that I would love to talk about. But I do want to sort of summarize here a little bit about what we're trying to do. So there's a model I have called dynamic healing. So what I mean by you have your stresses or circumstances that I call the input. Then you have your nervous system itself, which can be either calm or hypervigilant. Then you have the output or your body's physiology. So no matter which portal you come into, you want to lower your body's physiology from threat to safety. But this happens multiple times a day, every day. Because, I mean, life comes at us, we have to process things. So it's not a matter of avoiding stress, no matter how you process it. So there's ways of processing the input of the stress differently to minimize this impact on the, on the nervous system. There's ways of literally rebuilding the nervous system so it's more resilient. Then, like this little breath work we just did actually directly lowers the physiology. So whether it's the input, the nervous system, or the output, you're trying to lower the physiology. So we call it dynamic healing. So it allows the patient themselves to, to address any one of those portals on a given day. It's very self-directed by definition. You cannot do it. Nobody else can do this for you. So the two. So what I want to summarize with there's two parts to healing. So it's based on neuroplasticity and the body's chemistry. So we talked about how anxiety and anger are massive survival reactions. They're much stronger than the conscious brain, and you have no control. They're automatic. They're hardwired. We have no control. So the way you lower anxiety and frustration simply lower the stress physiology. That's it. So there's a bunch of tools that allow you to do that. So you learn how to process these massive reactions. And well, first of all, you separate your identity from them because they're not who you are. They're what you have to survive. So you separate from these reactions, learn to calm them down. So that's one skill. That doesn't solve the pain. The way you really solve the pain is that you move into joy and a good life. Hmm. So it's hmm. like learning a new language. So you're not going to learn French by trying to fix your English. You're not going to live this joyful life by trying to fix your survival life. So you want your attention on the solution, not the problem. But you don't want to do things that are enjoyable to distract yourself because it's a million to one mismatch. Mm -hmm. so, it's a, so there are two sets of learned skills I call becoming a professional at living your life. So you learn how to process and separate from anxiety and anger. You learn how to move into joy, good food, good wine, good friends, whatever you want to call it. That's where the healing occurs. Because it's all based on neuroplasticity. So as you learn to actually nurture these circuits into, into um, where you want them to go, it's game on. And that's why people thrive because they're not fighting anxiety and frustration anymore. And as they quit fighting that, then they actually get to nurture a new life. And it's consistently unbelievable and actually why I quit my practice. So my message is that, look, mental pain is the bigger problem. You cannot really treat physical symptoms without addressing the mental pain. 
because you can't escape your thoughts. I think that we think that the driving force behind all chronic pain is human consciousness. Call it psychological if you want, but you have mental threats and physical threats. You cannot solve the physical symptoms or mental symptoms, by the way, without addressing the mental threats. Not possible. And that's where workers' competent is down such a rabbit hole with their process because they're, they're, they're going absolutely backwards on it. Now, as you calm down the nervous system, I will admit that things do calm. I mean, it's bi-directional. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make it too simplistic here. But it's a bi-directional process, and you cannot separate these two out. So I don't use the term mind-body anymore. We're just a unit. Hmm. And the term mind-body implies there's a separation. Yeah. And the brain's actually part of the immune system, for goodness sakes. It's just a, just a unit. How do you fly a Boeing jet without a computer? Right. right. right? How are you going to run the human body without a nervous system? You just can't do it. So it's just an intertwined system. So my message is, look, I don't care if you're workers' comp or not. It is harder to get out of pain in workers' comp because the, how do I say this? You're trapped. You are legitimately yeah. trapped. And the more legitimate your anger, the harder it is to let it go. But you have to do it. It's doable. I have lots of workers' comp people that come out of chronic pain. I will definitely say it's harder. And one of the hardest part is that engagement point because you're so angry and frustrated and legitimately so that your brain's not actually functioning properly. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a catch-22. So that's my wish is to actually work with workers' comp people to create a better entry point. And we've been going for a long time with this. But then, again, two parts of healing, processing the survival skills and nurturing the consciousness or joy. And they're separate skills, but they're obviously linked. So anyway, the doc journey takes you through the sequence. The course and the app both do the same thing. The back-end control book gives you the background of what's going on. It's not a self-help process. It's just a framework that allows you to understand the problem in a way you can solve your own. You can create your own solutions. Very much self-directed. You do not need a pain clinic. We do often add on resources as you go along. But until you have that foundational heart, until you have that foundational process in place, it's hard, really, hard to, really hard to understand the whole process. Well, I... Dr. Hanscom, I've just been fascinated. I could listen to you for like two more hours because I just, I think some of the things you're saying resonate with what I've seen personally and and, and professionally in managing workers' comp for as long as I have. And I know that what you're doing definitely makes an impact. I, I think Matt would probably say the same thing. But I wanted to, one of the things we're doing this year as we wrap up is I wanted to ask each person we interviewed what their favorite part of what they do each day is. Because I feel like, and you kind of headed at some of this, there's a lot of negativity out there in the universe. And right. one, of the, one of the things I'm trying to do is put good, good vibes out there. And so I've wanted each, last year we had each of our guests tell them the last time they were truly happy, who were they with and what were they doing? This season, I want to talk about what's your favorite part about what you do each day and why does it bring you joy? Well, I love seeing patients get better. I mean, that does drive me harder than I should. I hate seeing people being damaged. So again, why it drives me so much. But I mean, things I do to actually keep myself going is I'm learning learning Italian. My wife's fluent in Italian. Um, we have a ping pong table in the backyard. I do weight training type thing. Those are things that, that I do is hobbies and stuff. Um, I do a, a, a guy's ski trip every year, which I'm getting ready to get that organized right now. So yeah, I do... I'm actually challenged by this concept of nurturing joy because that's not the first word in a surgeon's vocabulary. I have to tell you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm actually, I'm taking that to heart. One of my biggest mentors has really challenged me to actually work on that particular part of it. So yeah, I'm trying to actually work on my own process of, of putting my brain where I want it to go. 
So I, and again, also for the, the group I'm talking to right now, everybody has anxiety, everybody has stress. So if you're inclined to start going through either the app or the doctrine on your own, maybe 15, 20 minutes a day at the most, it's a learn skill. And it does dramatically change the way you process life in general. It's a great stress management tool. So I'd love to, you know, help some of you through this. That's fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Hanscom, and, and I know our, our audience will really enjoy hearing from you. And just remind everybody our motto to do right, think differently, and don't forget to care. And that's it for this episode of Adjusted. And just again, feel free to reach out to Dr. Haskinum if you have questions about his program. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.